today I'd like to talk about balance. Balance is a topic that we can look at from many different perspectives. And today I'd like to explore two main aspects of balance, both the side of balance in our practice, (coughs) balance in the way we practice, essentially. And then um, that I'd like to explore through looking at how we um, use effort and experience our energy. And then the other side is the balance that results from practice the balance of mind, this this space of uh, balanced, non-reactive mind, the the equanimous mind. So I'd like to explore balance from those two perspectives today. So first I'd like to look at balancing energy and effort, starting with looking at energy itself. Energy is a factor, I guess, of life. Um, It's a factor of mind. We need energy to live. It's just kind of the way way our bodies and minds work. And the Buddha uh, highlighted this, pointed to this as being a a place for us to explore, um, that it, it be balanced, that our energy level around our practice in particular be balanced. He compared the this quality He used an analogy around um, tuning a musical instrument, a stringed musical instrument, and said that if the um, strings on the musical instrument are too tight, then the the lute, he was using a lute analogy, the lute won't make beautiful music. When you pluck on that string, that string might snap, or the, the sound will be taut. And if the string is too loose, likewise, it won't make music. It'll just kind of thud or, you know, be, be dull, a, a kind of a dull sound. So the, um, he said, likewise in our practice, our energy needs to be neither too tight nor too loose. So tight, or when we're tight around our practice, that's when we're kind of over-efforting, over-striving. Um, we're, we're pushing too hard, we're... Um, focusing too hard. That kind of energy uh, tends to make the mind restless, agitated. On the other side is under-efforting, being a little too lax in our effort. When we're kind of just sitting there spacing out and you know, you know, we're kind of, as Joseph Goldstein likes to say, more or less mindful. <laughs> that's the that's the kind of realm of you know under efforting. Um, when we're in that terrain, it tends to lead towards dullness, spacing out, uh, just not a real connection, not a real meeting of our experience. So ways to balance energy, one of the main ways to balance energy is through mindfulness. We actually kind of need to monitor our energy level as we practice. 
and see, you know, is there too much energy right now? Am I working working too hard, trying a little over-efforting? Or is it a little bit too lax? So kind of looking at the conditions. And what what do I need to do? How do I need to apply my effort right now? And one of the main ways is through exploring our energy level with mindfulness. And in particular, when we're out of balance. And this is, this is really a kind of a theme of this talk in some ways, that one of the ways to come into balance is by noticing how we're out of balance. That that exploration of exploring how we're out of balance with mindfulness is a way that we, as Gil's example, you know, we, we kind of corral the horse back in to balance by noticing how we're out of balance. And so one of the ways to explore the over, uh, the over um, agitated mind, the, uh, the mind that's too energetic, is by being mindful of it. Just recognizing, okay, there's, there's agitation here, there's uh, restlessness here. Allowing that, not judging it, but just recognizing, okay, that's what's happening right now. Paradoxically, that willingness to turn towards that state of restless mind, the, the mindfulness um, gives it some space and um, allow, allows it to dissipate on its own. Now, often when we are in the mode of being over, over-energized, too restless, that um, there's something going on that's kind of contributing to that. Like we may be, um, if we're over-efforting, over it might be that there's a little bit too much eagerness, too much excitement going on. You know, oh, look at that. Oh, I'm, that's really interesting. I really want to see that and understand that. And there's just, it's a little, it's a little too much. It's a little too, uh, too, too engaged in a way. And so if we can just turn towards the quality of that feeling, okay, this is what it's like to be restless. This is what it's like. Then that can allow it to, uh, to settle on its own, to kind of come into balance on its own. And likewise, when we're dull, when the mind is kind of under-energized, then just simply recognizing, okay, this is, this is the state of mind that is low energy. This is how this feels. Gil talked about this this morning. The possibility, actually, of being mindful of a dull, a sleepy mind, a thick mind, a muddy mind. I have an analogy that I, I often like to use. I think around dullness and sleepiness in particular, there seems to be um, a belief that, for instance, how many of you have had the thought... I'm too sleepy to meditate. <laughs> I expect there's more of you out there. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to propose to you is if that thought is occurring to you, you might have enough mindfulness to actually be present for the sleepiness. And if you have enough mindfulness to recognize I'm sleepy, there might be enough mindfulness to actually start to meet that, um, that's, that experience. We have beliefs around what our mind needs to be like in order to meditate. 
We think it needs to be at a certain kind of level of, of alertness. And um, because of those beliefs, we, we tend to not um, give ourselves enough, we, we tend to not give ourselves credit for the possibility that we can actually be mindful of states like dullness and sleepiness. So this analogy that I like to use around this, um, some of you I know have heard this before, um, if you um, think of a mirror, you know, a mirror reflects anything, right? It doesn't matter what the mirror is reflecting. Uh, the, the quality of the mirror, the quality of the reflection is not changed by what is being reflected. And this is a good analogy, actually, for mindfulness. That um, the quality of mindfulness doesn't care what it's noticing. The mindfulness itself is not changed by whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's horrifying or beautiful. The the mindfulness is not changed by that. It is just simply this quality that knows, that reflects that experience, that is is present for that. So that quality of presence is not impacted by what it is reflecting. And now if we think about that mirror, that reflecting mirror, if it's coated with steam, you know, we think about trying to use a mirror that's coated with steam and, you know, we think it's not doing its job. You know, we need to do something with the mirror in order to be able to see ourselves in it. But if you think about the way the mirror works, that mirror is doing its job perfectly. It's reflecting every drop of water that's on the surface of that mirror perfectly. The difficulty comes when we try to use that mirror for a purpose other than it's jo- the job that it's naturally doing already. We may think that it's not doing its job. So likewise with our, our mindfulness, when the mind is sleepy or dull, it's like the, there's a fog it's like there's the, the fog over the, the mirror. It's like there's a fog in our minds. And if we're trying to use that mind to, uh, to see something else, which is often what we're trying to do when the mind is dull and sleepy, if we're trying to do that, then um, there can be a feeling of struggle. If we, if we have enough alertness, we can, uh, if we have enough energy in the system, we can actually be there for that dullness itself. And I have found, at least in my own experience, when I'm not resisting dullness or sleepiness, when I'm not trying to do something with the mind other than notice, this is what's happening right now, the mind is really dull. It's like the the mind, the system kind of relaxes and lets go. It's like, oh yeah, that's what's happening. I can be perfectly aware that the mind is dull. Not easy to pay attention to the breath right now, but the mind can be mindful of dull. So that is a possibility. It's a possibility of a way to come into balance around this dull mind. Now, it's not always the way uh, to go. I mean, there are times when the mind is so dull that we are just kind of dropping off and 
you know, as Gil said this morning, that there are times we, you know, through the investigation of sleepiness, we begin to understand when is it time to take action? When is it time to open our eyes? When is it time to stand up? But at times, and more often in my own practice at least, more often than uh, I would have given myself credit for, the mindfulness has been a, a beautiful way to come into balance around this dull or sleepy mind. So mindfulness as a way to come into balance. In fact, the, the mindfulness is sometimes talked about as being a balancing quality in the mind. There's um, a couple of lists in which mindfulness is kind of a central player in the list, um, where it's said that, you know, in one in one of those lists, it's like there's a set of factors that support or arouse energy and a set of factors that calm the energy down. And the Buddha is saying that, you know, okay, when there's too much energy, then, you know, we, we may need to support some of the ways that the mind can calm down. When there's too little energy, we need to bring up the, the factors of mind that arouse the energy. And right in the middle, he says, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is what allows us to recognize when we're out of balance. And we can use this quality of mindfulness to help bring us into balance. So this is, it's kind of an art form in a way. Um, the, um, one of the explorations around balancing energy is in how we make effort, how we actually apply ourselves in the practice. And this changes how we make energy, um, the kind of the optimal conditions, the optimal way to make energy changes depending on the conditions of um, the day, of our minds, of our bodies. There's all kinds of conditions that come into play that, that will alter how we should make effort or how what is the, the, the most skillful way to, to make effort. So it is it is like an art form actually. I mean I came up with this analogy uh, a few minutes ago. Um, you know I, I'm not a painter, but this is the analogy that came to me. So if any of you are painters and this is like way out of left field, I apologize, but this is you know I've done a little bit but um, so, you know, if you're painting um, and you want to get a certain effect on the, on the canvas, you, you need to take in the conditions of, you know, how much paint is on your brush, how thick the paint is, um, how perhaps um, if, if, you, if it's a kind of painting where the canvas is moist, how moist the canvas is. And at that, that gives you the sense of how much pressure you need to apply to the brush on the canvas. There's all these conditions, and the more you paint, the more it just becomes natural to um, to know the right amount of pressure to apply to that brush on the canvas. And so likewise in our meditation, the conditions change moment to moment, actually. And so it's a, it's a continual exploration around how 
uh, how to make effort. Effort and energy are really intimately connected. Actually, the way we make effort is what creates our energy. If we are over-efforting, it tends to create excessive energy. If we're under-efforting, it tends to result in a deficiency of energy. So I'd like to explore a little bit about balanced effort. This has really, for me, been a, a, a key in my uh, exploration of my my meditation practice, how to make a balanced effort. So it's not that hard to be mindful just in a moment. In a moment, right now, you can probably, as I mentioned, these experiences, you know, notice the sensations of your hands, the sensations of your buttocks, of your buttocks touching a chair or a cushion or a bench. The sensations of your lips touching. And the experience of hearing as I'm speaking. Not very hard in a moment to connect with those experiences. Probably for most of you, as I said each thing, there was a kind of a natural awareness, a natural knowing that arose around each of those. And so it's not very hard in a moment to be mindful. What is difficult and where a lot of our challenge comes around effort is in sustaining that mindfulness over time. We tend to, I think sometimes at least, you know, I would sit down at the beginning of a sitting and it'd be like, okay, 45 minutes. Okay, I'm going to be mindful for the whole 45 minutes. And it'd be like I picked up the whole 45 minute sitting in that first second trying to create the energy and effort to be present for the whole 45 minutes right in that first moment. That doesn't work that well. Instead, uh, a more useful approach is to make a tiny bit of effort, just enough to be present for a moment, and then do it again, and then do it again, and again, and again, and again. So this is a this is a kind of a different approach. You know that it's not hard for a moment to be mindful. Just keep doing that over and over again. Joseph Goldstein likes to offer what he calls the secret teaching of breath meditation. He says this is it. This is what this is how you how you can become the uh, expert breath meditator. Um, Notice half a breath and then notice the other half of the breath. Notice an in-breath and then notice an out-breath and then notice an in-breath and then notice an out-breath. Just making enough energy using enough effort to stay present for that short time so that we're not trying to pick up the whole 
45 minutes right at the beginning. Just a light touch of effort over and over and over again. And the mind will wander. It will wander. When you notice that, that's that's a, you know that's a big part of our relationship to meditation as well. That if we can be at ease when we notice that our mind has wandered, and simply um, allow the breath to come back, she's like, oh, the mind was gone. Okay, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. So just over and over again. This also applies in the walking meditation, this kind of um, this kind of approach in a way. I found when my mind was really scattered, you know, when I really was having trouble being present in walking meditation, I would kind of pick a pick something like a foot or two out on the path, a really short distance. And and it'd be kind of like, okay, can I be mindful and until I get to that leaf? It's like two steps. Okay, yep, I did that. Okay, next, next stone. Okay, can I get to that? So really just taking very small bits and continue doing that over and over again. This was like, this was a huge shift for me in my practice to not try to do so much So as we practice in this way, just a little bit, a little bit of effort to sustain for a short time, then what seems to happen is that the, uh, the momentum of the mindfulness starts to grow. That we, um, in the, just making a little bit of, a little bit of effort, half a breath, half a breath, half a breath, then after some period of time, what starts to happen is there's kind of a momentum of the mindfulness. And we don't need to remind ourselves every half breath anymore. So this is, again, where the art form of meditation comes in. That as we practice, we start to see, okay, how much energy is there if, I, if I'm attending to this breath Kind of like, how long does this wave of of attention last? Maybe it lasts for two or three breaths after a while. So this is kind of a tuning of the... Um, another way of making effort is like tuning the frequency of how much we kind of remind ourselves to be here. Be present. And so uh, I was just recommending, you know, at the beginning, it can be helpful, you know, Half a breath. Okay, half a breath. Enough effort to be present for half a breath. And then another half a breath. And after a while, we don't need to make that kind of reminder. Okay, I'll be here for this half a breath. I'll be here for this half a breath. Or I'll be here till this stone or that leaf on our, our walking path. It becomes more clear that the mind is, is present for longer. And so we don't need to uh, remind ourselves as frequently. So there's a little bit of a momentum that comes to the the um, the joining of the energy and the mindfulness that they've joined together. And there's a little bit of a momentum there. 
We don't have to try so hard. There's an analogy for this too. This analogy came to me a couple of years ago. Um, um, it's kind of like you know, if you you know those scooters that kids ride. Um, when they're at a standstill, they have to kind of tap on the ground to get going, and initially they need to tap pretty frequently for that momentum of that scooter to get going. But after a little while, it becomes counterproductive to keep tapping so much because there's already a momentum going. And so you can ride. Just ride the scooter. And what the art of riding a scooter is, is learning when it gets wobbly and when you need to put your foot down to tap again. So it's like that with the meditation, that as we learn how to apply the energy in these short moments that we get a sense of the kind of the momentum of the mindfulness and we begin to get a sense of how how much do I need to remind myself? This um, this effort is also kind of like a, a radar in effect, you know, that and I think balance in general kind of functions like a radar, you know, that it's said that when planes fly, you know, they're on a track, right? They're, they're on a radar track, and um, they're following that signal, but mostly they're always off course a little bit. So, you know, they go off one way, and then the radar, they get pick up on the radar signal, and so they head, they steer back, and then they go the other way, and then they go a little far too far the other way, and then they pick up on the radar signal again, and so they're just kind of always a little bit off course. That happens for us with our mindfulness too, that you know we will, um, in making this exploration around energy and effort, we will um, make too much effort at times and we will get the feedback, oh, there's a little bit too much agitation in the mind. Okay, maybe I should back off a little bit. And we back off too much, oh, the mind starts to wander. Okay, need a little bit more. So it's, it's kind of like that radar. Our own minds provide us with the signal how we know what that uh, amount of effort needs to be in this moment. For those of you who are strivers, and I know there's some of you in the room, over-efforters, those that tend to have a lot of that, I'm going to do this, this is, you know, I can, I can accomplish this, I'm going to make this happen, for those of you who have that kind of a tendency, um, one of the surprising explorations I've, I made and have found to be interesting to make around, um, around effort is that it's amazing how much over-efforting is done, even when it feels like I'm not over-efforting. If, you're, if you tend to be in the striving mode, this may be your experience too. And so I would ask myself, how little effort do I need in order to be mindful right now? Kind of backing off on the effort, that pushing, oh, I'm going to be present, I'm going to be present. I would back off, back off. I found, wow, I could back off a lot before my mind would wander. So again, this kind of learning. um, Be willing to explore what kind of effort and energy it takes. Be willing to Go off the radar on either side. If you're an under-efforter, you know you may need to go off the, the radar on the other side. Make a little. If you if you tend to be kind of a 
um, uh, one of my friends says that he's like the king of laziness and dullness. You know, his that's his experience. That his mind is is so much on that side that he he has to put in the that kind of that continual moment after moment effort. For me, my mind just tends to run with it, so I have to back off. So noticing. What is your mind doing around effort and energy? How does it feel? And how, how supportive is it of being present in a balanced way? So there's an, an analogy that the Buddha offers. It's a, a round... Um, some, some, somebody came to him and said, how did you cross the flood? And the flood is um, kind of an analogy for all of our struggles, <laughs> all of our the ways that we react out of greed, aversion, and delusion. And um, he said, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, I crossed the flood. When I tarried, I sank. When I hurried, I got swept away. So by neither tarrying nor hurrying, I crossed the flood. And for me, this this image has been, uh, it created an image for me of like the Buddha walking on water. <laughs> and that, you know, just meeting every moment of experience is like taking a step. Just by neither tarrying with what is experienced or hurrying past it, we give each moment, we meet each moment, just every moment, meeting each moment. This is another kind of model for the kind of energy to apply to our practice. Neither uh, trying to rush towards something, uh, nor to to, uh, kind of hold on to something that's here. Meet each experience, and then take the next step. What's the next thing that arises? What's the next thing? Meet each thing, moment after moment after moment. So that has been a a very useful analogy for me. Kind of, especially when it's difficult, especially when things are difficult. Okay, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, crossing that flood. So using energy in a balanced way like this, uh, as we kind of learn about this art form of energy, um, it tends to create a kind of a spaciousness in the mind. It creates a mindfulness. The, The mindfulness and energy together, when that energy is balanced, when the effort is neither too much nor too little, it creates a state in which the mind has space. It, it's, it creates that space of breathing room that Gil has been talking about. That neither too much nor too little effort. That when the mindfulness and the effort are kind of in balance, we have this, uh, this space to meet our experience. And this leads into... Uh, the second aspect of balance I'd like to talk about today, the aspect of mental balance. 
essentially as we learn how to apply our um, our effort in a skillful way it creates the conditions that this mental balance can come into being mental balance a kind of a definition of mental balance it was one that um, I, I kind of my own take on it is that this mental balance is, is kind of a state where um, you know, there's, there's, there's not. It's, it's like there's, there's room to go, to, to, um, to respond skillfully, rather than to react out of our habitual tendencies. That when the mind is balanced, there's enough space that, kind of like I, 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 I kind of envision this. Okay, you know, kind of like a. a uh, a sports person who's like on the field playing, you know, somebody who's got that balance to be able to respond wherever wherever things come from, whatever directions things come from. That this mental balance is that that kind of quality. That instead of being um, pulled around by our habitual tendencies, we can be um, kind of balanced and able to respond to whatever comes our way. So, mental balance, that sounds nice. Um, Mostly, the way to find our way to mental balance is through noticing how we're out of balance it's one of the um, you know, the paradoxes, essentially, of practice, that we find our way to um, wholesomeness and skillfulness through being willing to turn towards the ways in which unskillfulness is arising in our lives. So imbalance in the mind, by meeting imbalance, we can learn about balance. So what is imbalance in the mind? I alluded to it a few minutes ago with the sense of you know, reacting, um, re- you know, reacting out of our habitual tendencies. When there are pleasant things happening, we tend to like them, we tend to want them, we tend to grasp after them with, a, with um, eagerness, excitement, impetuosity. If things we, uh, are unpleasant, we tend to not like them, want to get rid of them. We react out of aversion, uh, frustration, hostility, anger. So these tendencies towards reactions, often it feels like it's just the way we are, you know. When that happens, that's what I do. That's how I react. It sometimes feels like we don't have much of a choice in how we react to things. So our practice, when we're willing to turn towards that reactivity, we begin to see the possibility that um, we do have a choice that there is some choice that we can make to, to not 
react. So mindfulness is really the main support for that, for exploring our reactivity, for turning towards to meeting our reactivity, the ways that we're out of balance. So what, what this actually amounts to is being balanced about being out of balance. Another one of those paradoxes that it, it's got to be okay that we're reactive. This is the, the, what, you know, what Gil was saying. Well, can we say yes to everything? Can I say yes to my reactivity? That saying yes is essentially a way of being in balance around whatever is happening. So a lot of our practice actually lies in this terrain of noticing how we're reacting to things. You know, things come up, we don't like them. We don't. Our, our, our knees hurt, and we don't like that. And we're sitting here either trying to force our way through that knee pain or we're um, you know, trying to, to, to get away from it. We're, we're creating fantasies in our mind to, to uh, get away from the pain. You know, we're, we're scheming or um, just checking out. So a lot of our practice lies in turning to meet our reactivity. So this, the, the key movement here in exploring reactivity is that there's something that we're reacting to. There's something in, the, in our experience that we're reacting to. It may be something pleasant, it may be something unpleasant. Can we take our attention out of that thing that we're reacting to? Maybe um, you know, a sound that's coming by that we, don't, that we don't like, we feel like it's distracting, or a body pain that we don't like, you know, we feel like that we, can't be, uh, we can't be present for it, or a, a fantasy in our mind that we're pulled to, we're drawn to. Some way that we, it's like that thing has just got us latched to it. So can we take our attention out of the thing and turn towards the, the response to that, the reaction to that, to knee pain, the aversion to knee pain? Can we turn and meet that? So it's, it's, it's a turning around of the attention. We're turning our attention towards the reactivity rather than focusing on the thing that we're reacting to. Now, this didn't make much sense to me when I first heard it. You know, why would that help? You know, why would it help to to turn towards reactivity? But at the time when I first heard this, I was kind of at a loss for anything else. Nothing else had worked. It's like, well, I guess I'll give it a try. You know, can't hurt to give it a try. And it was quite surprising, actually, how quickly it became apparent to me just how well this does work. Because when we take our attention out of the thing that we're reacting to, it's essentially part of what happens is that we're no longer attending to the thing that's kind of fueling that cycle of reactivity. And so we've, we've um, kind of cut the, the cord or cut the the momentum or the fuel for that reactivity and instead are just giving the uh, the reactivity our attention. It's like the disengaging of the gears I talked about, I think it was the first night. So that mindfulness turning towards our reactivity is like disengaging the gears from 
uh, the car that's speeding down the freeway. You know, before when we were paying attention to that pain, I hate that pain, this pain's so horrible, I've got to get rid of this pain. When we're doing that, we've got our foot on the gas. When we turn to the reality, aversion is happening. Oh, aversion is happening. That's like taking our foot off the gas and putting the car into neutral. There's the possibility with that that the um, essentially, you know, the car will stop because you're no longer adding the momentum. And likewise, the reactivity will tend to dissipate when we're no longer adding or fueling it. We're no longer fueling it. So some key explorations here, turning to the experience, um, towards the experience, often means letting go of thoughts around what we're reacting to. Can we let go of the, the thinking around that? Thinking about the, the knee pain, or thinking about the sound. Can we just turn to the experience of the reactivity itself? So letting go of the thoughts in favor of meeting the experience. And meeting it in the body is a great way to explore this. Turning towards the, how does it feel to not like knee pain? Oh, there's not just pain in the knee. I mean, there's the pain in the knee, but there's also a kind of the whole body gets tight and clenched. Okay, so there's that that's going on. That's part of that reactivity, turning towards that experience. Noticing what is happening in the mind, the kind of pushing away in the mind, the quality of no, 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 just that quality of can't have that. Just Okay, and that's also there, that quality of pushing away in the mind. So what's present in this exploring of reactivity? What is, what is here? So... This exploration, you know, neither acting out on the reactivity nor repressing it. It's kind of a middle way. The Buddha's path is called the middle path. I like that, you know, that ties into our balance theme too. It's middle, the middle way between like repression and acting out on. So when there's reactivity of any form, it might be self-judgment, it might be... Um, Frustration, it might be eagerness, it might be um, excitement. When there's, when, when there's anything going on, can we turn to meet that rather than having the sense of, oh, there's this excitement, the mind is all restless, I've got to stuff that and come back to my breath. If we're trying to repress it, it tends to kind of, when we try to repress something, it's like putting the lid on a pressure cooker. And it just kind of boils underneath until it can, can, can kind of explode again. So that's one tendency that we have. The other tendency is to, to kind of indulge it, to act out on it. So this is a middle way. It's like we don't either express it or repress it. We just turn to meet it with mindfulness. And that turning to meet has this beautiful capacity to allow it to uh, to express itself internally, not express itself in the world, but to be met. Sometimes these these uh, reactions that we have, they're they're basically, you know, it's almost like a little kid in there saying, "Look at me, look at me," you know, I want to be seen. And when we turn to meet it, it can relax a little bit. It's, oh, okay, just meeting that energy. 
it can uh, find its own way to dissipate. We don't have to do that dissipation. We can just meet our experience and watch, watch it unfold, watch it dissipate. So for me, um, you know, sometimes this trying to turn towards something like something difficult, often these reactivities are experienced as suffering, they're experienced as um, struggle, as unease, as, you know, sometimes even a very strong sense of, oh, that's not, not right, that's not good. For me, sometimes when I turn towards that feeling, when it's a strong kind of reactivity, often there's a strong kind of energy behind it. It's almost like a volcano exploding or something. You see something and then, oh, it's not, shouldn't be that way. So there's a strong kind of rising. There can be a strong kind of rising of energy. And for me, this is a, this, I've got my own horse analogy around this. For me, it feels like I'm leaping onto the back of a wild horse. It's like there's there's this explosion of some kind of reactivity. And when mindfulness can be there and just oh, watch it, it feels like oh, I just meet that rising energy. It's like leaping onto the back of a wild horse. And in that, it, it becomes kind of, um, you know, when we're, when we're there with that wild horse, there's a little bit of way that, you know, initially we're just on for the ride. <laughs> initially there's just that kind of the sense of the, the, uh, the rising of that reactivity. But with the, the mindfulness, it's um, meeting that, it's, it's like the, that wild horse kind of almost naturally begins to respond to the mindfulness. To me it feels almost, it's like an Aikido move. You know Aikido where there's some kind of energy coming at you, attacking you. Uh, the instructions are like, you take that energy, you use that energy to redirect it so that your your attacker doesn't get at you. Oh, quarter turn, you know. It feels like that in the practice, that, the, that when we can, you know, meet that energy, jump on the back of that wild horse, it's like the mindfulness then gets... In, in it, it's kind of funny to say this, you know, Gil may cringe as I say this, but it feels to me almost like the, the, the mindfulness gets nourished by the energy of the reactivity so that the, the mindfulness can strengthen by meeting that quality. It feels to me like that, that, that Aikido move, you know, so it just the, that the, you know, taking the energy and using it skillfully. That the, that, that, that's how it has felt to me. That when I can meet that reactivity with the mindfulness, the mindfulness can get strengthened through that very meeting. So as we explore this, turning towards our reactivity, meeting our reactivity, we begin to see ways that, um, we begin to directly experience the benefits of this. We see ways that, for a moment, 
the reactivity falls away as we're willing to to be with it. One experience um, just seared itself into my mind around this. In on one retreat, doing walking meditation, it was a long retreat. It was a three-month retreat, and I had so much desire to look at the other people. It was so strong, and so I was, you know, at first I was like, "I'm a good yogi. I'm not going to look," and it would be like I put these blinders on, and um, it was a kind of a forcing, a willful forcing myself not to look. After some weeks of that, I finally, duh, got it that, well, wanting is going on here. Maybe I should observe the wanting. Maybe I should notice the wanting. And so I began to explore the wanting, to turn towards that reactivity, essentially. Not acting it out, not following through on the wanting, but also no, no longer repressing it. That the Putting the blinders on and saying, I'm a good yogi, I'm not going to look... That was repressing the wanting. Acting it out would be giving myself over to it. You know, oh, I'll look. You know, when that wanting comes up, I'll look. I did neither of those. Instead, I kept my eyes down, but instead of repressing the feeling, when that feeling came up, I was like, what is this feeling of wanting? It was like a magnet. I felt like, I felt like, you know, all of my, my energy was like being pulled to look at that person. So I just began to explore that feeling. What does that wanting feel like? Exploring it over and over and over again. And then I began to notice the causes and conditions that led to that wanting coming together. I mean, again, it seems kind of obvious in a way. The wanting arose when somebody oh, appeared in my field of vision, even in the periphery. Oh, there they are. Wanting arises. And then... That by not looking at them, you know, the person wandered by, walked in front of me, real strong temptation there, you know, mm-hmm. then I didn't look, but then walked up the stairs, went inside the building, the wanting vanished. It was like being released from a vice grip. So that's that moment of directly seeing here and now a directly visible aspect of Dharma. Through this willingness to explore the uh, reactivity, in this case wanting, I got a direct experience both of the wanting itself, the the, the, the actual suffering of the wanting, and the feeling of release from that wanting when I saw it go away. So we, in this exploration, we start to, to see this, uh, this moment of the Dharma that Gil talked about yesterday. Visible here and now. How is the Dharma visible here and now? When we see that shift around our clinging. The only place we can see that is when we're mindful in the present moment. When we're willing to be present for the ways that we hold on, the ways that we push away. So we begin to get a taste of that that letting go. And that's a taste of balance, a taste of balance of mind. 
Sometimes we're not even aware of how out of balance we are. I mean, I didn't know how out of balance the mind was when I was going, don't look, don't look, was not really aware of all of the, the wanting that was underneath and how much suffering there was in that wanting. Not until I really started to look, explore, what is that feeling of wanting? And then what does it feel like when it disappears? Huge difference. A real release from a grip. So this is a way, too, in which the practice is is onward leading. That... uh, when we get it, that kind of a taste of, oh, you know, when I'm willing to be with something, I can begin to see how it can let go. I begin to get a taste of what it's like for it to let go. We get, we get to see that contrast between the tightness of holding on and the freedom of letting go. When we get those tastes, it spurs us on to more willingness to engage more willingness to meet our reactivity so through this process basically one of the things that happens too is that our mind starts to understand how it is um, engaged in this process of, of struggle that, it, that the mind is doing a lot of that that there's a contribution of our own minds. This this wanting in this last example was, um, you know, that is that is a contribution to the struggle. What I saw in that moment was that there was a way out of that wanting that didn't require the satisfaction of that desire. The wanting can go away. The wanting can disappear. When the wanting disappears, the struggle disappears, the suffering disappears. So that exploration, the mind starts to see this kind of this mis- this mistaken notion that we have that satisfying our desires is, is the way to happiness. And we begin to see through this practice that it's the desire itself that's leading to our unhappiness and that letting go of the wanting is a drop into a deeper kind of happiness. So as we do this practice, you know, Early on in our practice, there's certain kinds of reactivity that are so habitual, so strong that um, it's like there's a gravitational pull to them. For me, you know, aversion. It's like that's that's it's almost always my reaction to just about anything. I'll be averse to, to anything, <laughs> and there's a strong gravitational pull in that direction. But the more I began observing the reactivity, observing the aversion, it's like that pull towards that in that direction got weaker. It's, it's definitely still there. That's still my tendency. But it's, it's so much weaker. And then 
at times even there's a gravitational pull in the other direction towards non-reactivity kind of like you know walking walking uh, on one retreat I was walking um, up a uh, a walkway and something was happening over on the side that I didn't like something that was going on over there there was this kind of rising of this energy oh you know I don't like that and you know kind of a, a whole big story that was starting to be born around why they shouldn't be doing that thing and what would be better for them to be doing you know all of this and and it was kind of like the mind saw that movement in that direction and it's like that way lies suffering you know that's when, when the mind begins to really get clear that it is contributing to its own suffering, it begins to naturally, when it sees itself going there, it's like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and there becomes a kind of a gravitational pull in the other direction. So in seeing that, the mind kind of going that way, it was almost like, oh, no, let's just come back here where it's quiet. And it wasn't anything I had to do. It was the mindfulness itself the willingness to be with that arising of that movement towards aversion and the mind knowing that way lies suffering and okay, you know, coming back. So the mind itself can bring itself back into balance through over time, I mean that's this is a gradual process, through the being willing to meet over and over again how we react. So we, we might think of balance of mind as being um, kind of a dull place to be. You know, we get fed by our reactivity sometimes. It seems like we, we feed on the energy of that reactivity. If we weren't reacting to things, we think it'd be a pretty dull place to be. And sometimes there's also a mistaken notion that when we're non-reactive, that it means we're indifferent, that we don't care. That sometimes we have the sense of, you know, if I'm reacting to something, it really shows, it proves that I care. Non-reactivity isn't about not caring. Actually, when the, the heart and the mind are more balanced and that heart is more open and balanced it's able to meet more deeply care more deeply because it's not being pulled around by fear and uh, and wanting so it's not being pulled around it can actually meet what's happening so this non-reactive mind can actually meet experience more deeply. It's what allows us to open to the beauty and the pain of the world. It allows the heart to respond with compassion when there's suffering, with joy when there's success and happiness, with kindness towards experience. I'll close by reading what a German monk, Nyanapanika, wrote around equanimity. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind 
rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness of understanding, to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead, cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. So balance, exploring balance from these two sides, the side of how we use our energy and the willingness to meet the ways in which we're out of balance as a way to find our way towards balance. So let's just sit for a moment. Mm-hmm.